March 27, 1995, was another dull Monday at one of the many cheap motels in Corpus Christi, Texas. The check-in desk had already seen their regular share of out-of-towners, road trip pit stoppers, and low-rent lovers. Then, a whisper spread through the lobby about a very unexpected guest. Selena was outside. 23-year-old Selena Quintanilla was one of the hottest Latin pop stars in America. She dominated the Tejano Music Awards for nine years running and had received a Grammy for her album, Selena Live, a year prior. Everyone in Corpus Christi knew that the singer lived in the city. But what could she be doing here? The staff wanted to find out. They grabbed their notepads and rushed outside to beg Selena for autographs. Passers-by noticed, and before she could even make it to the front door, the star was surrounded by a mob of fans. It was so overwhelming, she had no choice but to turn around and head back to her car. Her casual visit clearly wouldn't be happening today. So who was Selena there to meet? Not a high-powered record executive or a fellow musician. Not a sordid secret love affair. Inside the motel was her recently fired fan club president and a loaded 9mm pistol. That day, Selena's fame saved her life in the nick of time. But soon, her fame would be what killed her. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our ninth episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. You can find episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're looking at the short and tragic life of Selena Quintanilla, who is remembered as the Queen of Tejano. In the 80s and 90s, she became one of the first Latin artists to successfully cross over into mainstream American pop. But her youth, naivete, and unprecedented fame left her vulnerable to threats lurking just beyond the spotlight. In the past eight episodes, we've focused almost exclusively on artists whose fame led them on a path of self-destruction. In many of these cases, 
drug abuse, violence, and crime were hidden from the public eye under the shiny veneer of celebrity. But Selena stands apart. She fully lived up to her wholesome, aspirational image, both in public and private. She didn't party. She was faithfully married to her bandmate, Chris Perez. She lived, worked, and toured with her close-knit family. She was a happy, determined, bright young woman who saw the best in people. And that was her downfall. Selena never allowed herself to be corrupted by the music industry's pressures. Long hours and stressful tour schedules never dulled her passion. Public scrutiny never scared her away. When others tried to constrain her, she found a way to push the boundaries. But the more willing she was to give, the more the music world would take. Her optimism and desperate quest for independence led to her early death at age 23 when she was shot by the president of her own fan club. Selena's life ended the way it began, in the pursuit of fame. She was born and bred for the stage. Her father, Abraham Quintanilla Jr., had been a musician himself. When he was in his early 20s, he was the frontman of an up-and-coming pop group called The Dinos. Based in Corpus Christi, Texas, The Dinos released their first single in 1959 to local acclaim. Their second single reached the Texas Top 40 charts, earning them airplay from stations across the state. But just as soon as their star began to rise, the band's success stagnated. They were a group of Latino men competing in the white-dominated pop world. Their race limited their mainstream popularity, and their English lyrics limited their appeal among Latino audiences as well. So they changed their name to Los Dinos and started singing in Spanish. This plan wasn't so well calculated. Now they were too Mexican to attract any mainstream attention at all, and their pop-centric tunes still put them at odds with Latino audiences who expected to hear Mexican folk music. Despite a few more local hits, Los Dinos never really took off. By 1969, the 30-year-old Abraham and his wife Marcella had a growing family to support, and touring wasn't paying the bills. He was forced to hang up his hat and settle down. But he didn't give up on music entirely. The Quintanilla children were required to practice music as soon as they were old enough to hold instruments. Their eldest son, A.B. learned the guitar and bass. Suzette played drums. And their youngest child, Selena, was destined to be a singer. One day, young Selena walked into the room while her father was playing the guitar and started singing along. What he heard blew him away. A.B. and Suzette were decently talented, but Selena was truly gifted. From that moment, Abraham's sense of purpose was reignited. He would mold his daughter into the star he never got a chance to be. In 1981, when Selena was nine, Abraham formed the three children into a band and christened them Selena y los Dinos. The group got their start playing at school fundraisers, quinceañeras, and at the Mexican restaurant Abraham and Marcella owned. Every time they took the stage, Selena would steal the show. She had an enthusiasm and confidence that was one in a million. 
Even though their performances were small, Abraham trained them as if they were headlining at Madison Square Garden. As soon as he got home from work in the afternoon, the kids had to put down their homework, tell their friends goodbye, and get ready to practice. Initially, Selena didn't really care about music. She liked singing, but she didn't have much drive or motivation. After all, she was nine years old. But then she realized she could use her status as the family star to compete for her father's attention. The harder she worked, the more she outshone her two older siblings. That sense of rivalry is what kept her going through each evening's several-hour rehearsal. Two years after the band got their start, the family's restaurant went under. They lost everything in the bankruptcy proceedings, their assets, their source of income, and their home. The Quintanillas were forced to move in with relatives. With nothing left to hold him back, Abraham went all in on his musical aspirations. Selena y Los Dinos graduated from small-time school concerts to paid gigs at weddings, fairs, and local events. Every weekend, the whole family loaded into a rundown old bus and drove across the state to wherever they could find an audience. This iteration of Los Dinos wouldn't make the same mistake as the first. They sang in Spanish and English, playing a mix of Latin folk and American pop known as Tejano. Many of their first songs were written by Abraham himself. The only problem was that Selena wasn't fluent at all in Spanish. This meant hours and hours spent sitting with her father as he helped her memorize the lyrics phonetically. Hours that could have better been spent on schoolwork. By the time Selena was in seventh grade, her grades were falling behind because of the long hours of performances and rehearsals. Time was something the children had to be willing to sacrifice. Under Abraham's roof, music came before everything, before studying, before friendships, before money. Abraham devoted so much time to managing Los Dinos, he couldn't hold down an outside job. Needless to say, the amateur teenage Latin pop group wasn't bringing in a massive profit, so the family's finances were rocky. They all slept on the bus while they were on the road to avoid the cost of a hotel room. When they needed money for food or gas, Selena would be sent out to sing for tips on the street corner. The unstable circumstances, combined with the constant togetherness, drew the family very close to each other, almost suffocatingly so. Abraham was a devout Jehovah's Witness, and he kept his teenage daughters under a watchful eye. Anything even remotely scandalous or immodest was not to be tolerated. Selena wasn't allowed to date, and her father always approved her makeup and outfits before she went on stage to make sure she was presenting a wholesome image. It wasn't hard to keep Selena away from boys, since she didn't have time for a social life in the first place. After school, she was practicing. On the weekends, she was touring. In between, she missed more than a few days of school. In fact, she missed so much class time that her seventh grade teacher called Abraham in for a conference. She noted that Selena was probably a valedictorian quality student, but the chronic absences and exhausting hours were hurting her academic potential, and some of the other teachers thought it might harm her psychologically as well. If something didn't change, 
she threatened to report Abraham to the Texas Board of Education. In response, Abraham told the teacher to mind her own business and pulled Selena out of school entirely. From eighth grade on, she would be homeschooled. And with that, Selena's time was consumed entirely by music. Now that she could practice, eat, sleep, and study on the tour bus, there was barely any reason to go home at all. Los Dinos were on the road constantly, and with their precarious finances, skipping out on a gig was never an option. On more than one occasion, Abraham forced his 13-year-old daughter to go out and sing when she was sick or had a sore throat. Nevertheless, she did it with a smile. Did all of this amount to child abuse, as Selena's teachers suggested? Well, it's hard to say. Selena later acknowledged that the band's early years were grueling, and she was never really given a childhood. She missed out on friendships, school, all the normal parts of growing up. But she maintained that the sacrifices were all worth it for the chance to do what she loved. On the other hand, Selena said this after she'd broken through to fame. In the music industry, there's always an element of luck along with talent and hard work. Even with her intense level of dedication, there was never a guarantee that the stars would align just right for success. And if all those sacrifices hadn't led anywhere, would she feel the same way? Or would she look back on her childhood with bitterness, regretting all the opportunities she'd lost in the pursuit of something that never materialized? It's impossible to know for sure, because the stars did align for Selena. Around the time of her 15th birthday in 1986, she appeared on the cover of the Tejano Entertainer under the headline, Selena y los Dinos Make Sudden Impact on Tejano Music Industry. Later that year, the band had their first hit single, Da Mun Beso, which reached number one on the local charts in El Paso, Texas. Fame came early and fast. At the 1986 Tejano Music Awards, Selena was nominated for Female Vocalist of the Year. No one expected the 15-year-old newcomer to win. She was up against a well-established star, Laura Canales. But in a shocking upset, Selena won. After that, Selena y los Dinos took off. They were booking bigger venues selling pricier tickets. But the day-to-day -day was still mostly the same. Abraham continued on as manager, sound mixer, roadie, bus driver, and creative director. And despite their increased star factor, the family still barely made ends meet. Even though Selena was the front woman, an obvious star of the show, industry executives and promoters were reluctant to market her as a solo act. Tejano music was mostly dominated by men, and no one was sure if a teenage girl would be able to reach a wide enough audience to succeed. There were two established routes for a Latin act to break through into the mainstream music world, and Selena didn't quite fit into either. The first was to sing in English, which Selena was fully willing to do, since it was still the only language she spoke fluently. But Abraham repeatedly nixed this idea. He had his sights set on option number two. Sing in Spanish, make it big in Latin American markets, and then market yourself in the U.S. as an international star. But this, too, had obvious problems, since Selena's limited Spanish made her an awkward fit among the Latin American crowd. 
She was both too Mexican for the U.S. and too American for Mexico. But Selena's mixed background was a blessing in disguise. She attracted an audience of young Mexican-Americans who, like her, didn't fully identify with either their family's cultural background or the Anglo-American culture around them. Los Dinos's unique blend of modern pop stylings and Mexican folk traditions made them a natural flashpoint for the new generation of Tejano. By the time Selena turned 18 in 1989, EMI Latin and Sony Music Latin both wanted to sign her as a solo act. Abraham chose to go with EMI, and by summer, her debut album was underway. Selena was still pushing to record an album in English, and by now, Abraham had relented. But when he broached the idea with the label, they weren't interested. They'd signed a Latin artist to their Latin division. If Selena wanted to sing in English, she'd have to go somewhere else. Nevertheless, when Selena released her debut album in Spanish in October 1989, it peaked at number seven on the Billboard Regional Mexican chart. It was a modest success, but it was enough to prove the detractors wrong. If a young Latina girl could succeed in the male-dominated Tejano scene, maybe she could survive the mainstream pop world too. Maybe someday she'd have a place at the regular EMI records, not EMI Latin. But to get there, she would have to struggle against the man who'd controlled her career from day one, her father. Coming up, Selena forges her own path into the spotlight. Now back to the story. At the turn of 1990, 18-year-old Selena Quintanilla was well on her way to stardom. Her debut album with EMI Latin was a modest hit. She was garnering coverage in the mainstream press. She'd even signed a deal to become a spokeswoman for Coca-Cola. But through it all, she was still living under the thumb of her father, Abraham. Selena had a curvy figure and magnetic charisma that lent itself to a sexy, sultry image. This was obviously a no-go for her conservative, ultra-religious father. The photo shoot for her debut album's cover art had already been a disaster. Selena chose her own outfit, a black bandeau top and a long, flowing skirt. When she walked out of the dressing room, Abraham was irate. Throughout the shoot, he stood to the side of the room, stewing, leaving Selena distracted and uncomfortable. This wasn't a one-off either. On some occasions, Abraham actually halted photo shoots and forced his grown daughter to wash off her makeup. Nowhere was Abraham's controlling nature more apparent than in Selena's love life, or lack thereof. Even though she was an 18-year-old woman, she still wasn't allowed to date. This made it complicated when she developed a crush on her band's guitarist, 20-year-old Chris Perez. Chris was one of the worst people Selena could have fallen for. Her father already hated him. When he'd auditioned for the band two years earlier, Abraham nearly refused to hire him, afraid of how his hardcore rocker vibe would affect Selena's pristine, wholesome image. But Chris was interested in Selena, too. And one night, in the quiet, romantic corner of a roadside pizza hut, 
the two lovebirds expressed their feelings. Of course, since the whole band was spending day and night together on the tour bus, it didn't take long for the rest of the family to notice. Selena's sister Suzette saw the two flirting. Always the rule follower, she told Abraham. He immediately confronted the couple and told them the relationship had to end. After 18 years of following her father's orders, Selena had had enough. She didn't try to argue. That would get her nowhere. Instead, she and Chris kept seeing each other in secret. Amazingly, they managed to keep their relationship hidden for two years. Then, on a long ride in the tour bus in early 1992, they let their guard down. Abraham caught a glimpse of Selena and Chris sitting a little too close together in the back of the bus. It was clear they'd been ignoring his admonition. He immediately pulled over and unleashed his fury. Selena tried to reason with him, but it was a lost cause. Abraham called Chris a cancer in their family and fired him from the band right then and there. He was never allowed to see or speak to Selena again. Selena was devastated. Even at age 20, she didn't have autonomy over the smallest personal decision. If Abraham was just her father, she could buck his orders without consequences for her career. If he was only her manager, she could replace him and go on doing whatever she wanted. But he was both. And he'd seen to it that besides her family and her music, Selena didn't have anything of her own. Except Chris. After a few months of utter despondency, Selena couldn't take it anymore. She tracked Chris down and pounded on his door in hysterics. She wanted to get married immediately. If they were legally bound together, her father would either have to accept their union or completely disown her. Wherever the chips fell, at least she would have made her own decision. That same day, on April 2, 1992, Selena and Chris were married at the Noises County Courthouse in Corpus Christi. They planned to wait for the right time to tell their families, but word spread through the courthouse and to the airwaves before they'd even left the building. The whole Quintanilla family heard the news of their daughter's wedding over the radio. After a couple of days spent hiding out with Chris's family in San Antonio, the newlyweds returned to Corpus Christi. To their surprise, Abraham knocked on their door and offered a sincere, if businesslike, apology. He hadn't realized how serious Selena was about the relationship, and he admitted he shouldn't have tried to push them apart. He invited Chris to rejoin the band. Abraham had learned his lesson. His daughter was a grown woman now. She needed to have her space. Unfortunately, this new philosophy would backfire. He'd been so overprotective for so long that Selena couldn't tell a harmless dolphin from a deadly shark. And in the music world, sharks lurk in the unlikeliest of places. Enter Yolanda Saldivar. In June of 1991, Yolanda approached the Quintanillas about forming an official Selena fan club. She would run the whole thing herself. For a $22 membership fee, she'd sent out t-shirts, newsletters, and concert lists to fans, spreading publicity to every corner of the country at no cost to the band itself. 
Yolanda was a 30-year-old nurse from San Antonio. She was short, plump, and unassuming, often described as a wallflower. She'd been raising her brother's three children as her own since she was 18, all while putting herself through school and working double shifts at the hospital. This was something Selena and Yolanda immediately bonded over. Neither of them ever had much of a social life because of their demanding work schedules and family commitments. The two loners understood each other in a way that no one else really could. Over the next couple of years, the fan club took off, and Yolanda took over more and more of the band's marketing responsibilities. In late 1993, she quit her nursing job to work full-time as Selena's personal assistant. To say Yolanda was dedicated to the job would be putting it lightly. She was obsessed. She was there for Selena around the clock, managing her calendar, answering her phone calls, helping her choose her outfits, giving her neck massages. She was a confidant, a yes woman, and almost a surrogate mother. Behind the scenes, Yolanda's obsession was even creepier than it first appeared. When a radio station employee stopped by her house to pick up some materials, he ran headfirst into a Selena shrine, complete with framed photos and prayer candles. It was the kind of celebrity worship you'd expect from a little girl, not a 32-year-old woman. And yet, the Quintanilla family didn't find Yolanda's behavior troubling. She was a little odd, but this was exactly the kind of admiration Selena's public image was meant to cultivate. She was marketed as the warm, joyful beauty next door, the bright, hardworking role model, the perfect ideal of womanhood. As one longtime friend put it, everyone wanted to be like Selena. Everyone wanted to be the kind of daughter she was, the kind of wife, singer, performer, and person she was. She expressed confidence in herself and in her heritage. The real Selena Quintanilla certainly was all these things, but the carefully crafted image that was Selena took on an almost mythical quality. She was too perfect to be relatable, too aspirational to be attainable. Her public persona encouraged hero worship and objectification. It was exactly the kind of ideal that drew in women like Yolanda, the wallflowers of the world who had always dreamed of being in some way special. She might never be perfect like Selena, but just being near her gave Yolanda a sense of power and self-worth. And now that she was in her hero's orbit, she kept working her way closer and closer to the center. In January 1994, Selena opened up a salon and boutique in Corpus Christi called Selena Etc., She'd always loved fashion, and this was a business venture she could oversee on her own, outside of Abraham's control. Who did she choose as the boutique's manager? Her close friend and loyal assistant, Yolanda Saldivar. This was the ultimate power rush. As the registered agent, Yolanda's name was on the company checks, credit cards, bank accounts. She controlled which employees spoke directly to Selena and when. She was so close to the spotlight, she could feel the warmth on her face. This is where it all started to fall apart. Yolanda had done a great job managing the fan club, but she had no actual business experience whatsoever. 
She picked fights with employees regularly, then fired them instead of resolving the disputes. Shipments were lost, receipts weren't organized, the books were a mess. The staff had more than a few things to say about their management, but Yolanda always had her own side of the story. And it was Yolanda's side that Selena always believed. After all, Yolanda was her best friend, the only real confidant she had. When Selena's fourth album, Amor Prohibido, was released in March 1994, it reached number three on the Billboard Latin chart, and its first single became the most successful Latin hit of the year. With that kind of buzz, it felt like everyone wanted a piece of her. Except Yolanda, who was always there and never asked for anything. Yolanda's presence became even more important when Selena and Chris hit a rocky patch later that year. They were both under pressure because of the band's rising success, and they started arguing about everything from whether Chris was allowed to tour with other bands to whether heavy metal, which Selena considered devil's music, was allowed to be played in the house. Late one night in 1994, Selena and Chris had another petty argument after stumbling home from the tour bus. Selena went to bed, and while she was lying down, she stretched out her leg and kicked Chris's guitar off the edge of the bed. And whether it was a genuine accident or whether she was trying to provoke him isn't clear, but Chris fully believed it was the latter. Another screaming match erupted, and it escalated until Chris threw the guitar right past Selena, knocking over a table. Just two years into their marriage, both sides were thinking about separating. Selena thought she might have rushed into the marriage too quickly, while they were both too young to handle the commitment. She leaned on Yolanda, who was always there to console her. Unlike the record execs and the audiences, and even her own family, Yolanda never tried to change Selena. She offered unwavering support, and she never asked for anything in return. But Yolanda was exerting her control in a more insidious way, by isolating Selena from anyone who might compete for her attention. When Selena and Chris were on the outs, Yolanda took his place, traveling alongside the singer, never missing an opportunity to point out how badly he was treating her. When problems arose at the boutique, she blamed it on other employees, driving a wedge between Selena and the rest of the staff. She wanted Selena all to herself. Yolanda didn't just want affection. She wanted the glamour and power that came along with being so close to her celebrity idol. And if she wanted to run in those glamorous circles, she needed something else, too. Money. In January 1995, Abraham started getting calls from fans who had sent in their fee to join the Selena fan club, but never received their merchandise packs. He looked into the club's bank records to check for discrepancies, and he noticed something odd. There were thousands of dollars missing from the account, and there were thousands of dollars worth of checks written out to Yolanda Saldivar, signed in her own handwriting. Coming up, we'll look at the tragic fallout of Selena's confrontation with Yolanda. Now, back to the story. In early 1995, 
Abraham Quintanilla Jr. confronted his daughter Selena with damning evidence that her longtime assistant Yolanda Saldivar was embezzling money from her fan club. Selena didn't want to believe it. Yolanda was one of her best friends. She trusted her completely. It certainly didn't help that Abraham had a history of trying to pull his daughter away from people who competed for her time. Case in point, her now husband, Chris. Selena brushed off the accusations, telling him, Dad, you think all people are bad. We certainly can't blame her for assuming that this was a rehash of what had happened with Chris. But that was a battle between Selena and Abraham, her father. This was between Selena and Abraham, her manager. He had a responsibility to protect her from people who might exploit her fame for their own purposes. For so long, he'd gone overboard, sheltering her to the point where she wasn't worldly enough to make her own informed decisions. Now that he'd finally given Selena some much-needed space, her naivete had let one of those predators slip into her inner circle. As much as Selena rejected the idea that Yolanda would steal from her, she had to admit that something didn't add up. So on March 9, 1995, Selena, Abraham, and Suzette Quintanilla called Yolanda in for a meeting. They laid out the bank records, the copies of the checks she had written to herself, and the discrepancies in the books. Abraham threatened to call the police if she didn't explain where the money was. But all she could do was repeat, I don't know. I don't know. Selena didn't say a word. She still couldn't wrap her head around the fact that her most trusted advisor had betrayed her. The Quintanillas decided to handle the problem themselves and let Yolanda resign quietly instead of pressing charges. Despite the betrayal, Selena still cared deeply for her friend. Sure, Yolanda had made a terrible mistake, but what about all the help she'd been over the past few years? It didn't feel right to cut her off entirely for one little indiscretion. Abraham, understandably, wasn't so lenient. He wanted to fire Yolanda immediately. But there was a hitch in this plan. When he contacted the bank to get a copy of the fan club account's records, he discovered they were all gone. Yolanda had cleared out the rest of the money, taken the only copy of the paperwork, and closed the account. They needed those records for tax filing, so like it or not, they had to keep Yolanda on friendly terms until they got the missing papers back from her. This was easier said than done. Yolanda was splitting time between Corpus Christi and her family home in San Antonio. She also took a brief detour to Monterey, Mexico, and cleared out the files of another bank account for the Selena Etc. boutiques, which no one had remembered to take her name off of. For her part, Selena was busy recording her next album in Nashville. It was going to be her crossover into English-language pop, the kind of music she'd always wanted to make. It was also the first album her older brother, A.B., wouldn't be producing. They'd brought in Grammy-nominated pop producer Keith Thomas to make sure it was a hit. No one was pleased when the session was interrupted by a call from the bank in Monterey, informing Selena about the unusual activity. 
When Selena got back to Texas on March 30th, she drove over to the Days Inn Motel where Yolanda was staying, determined to get those papers back and put the matter to bed. But when she arrived at a little after 11 p.m., Yolanda was in a frenzy. She claimed that a few days ago, she'd been abducted from her car and raped by a strange man. She even had the bruises to prove it. Selena wasn't sure whether to believe her or not. On one hand, Yolanda was a proven liar who'd been stalling her for weeks. On the other, Yolanda was also her friend, and she seemed sincere. Why would anyone lie about being raped? What was there to gain from that? So Selena set her grudge aside and spent 20 minutes calming Yolanda down. Then finally, Yolanda handed over the bank records. Selena took the folder, drove home, took a cursory look at the papers before going to bed, and realized some of the files were still missing. The next morning, March 31st, Selena got up early and drove back to the Days Inn. Once again, Yolanda was panicking. She claimed she had been bleeding badly from the rape and needed to go to the hospital. Once again, Selena fell for it. She drove Yolanda to the hospital, where the nurses noted that the bruises on her arms and legs didn't look like they were caused by a baseball bat, as Yolanda had claimed. From the examination, it wasn't clear whether she had actually been assaulted or not. But Selena could see the answer. She'd been duped over and over again by one of the only people she'd ever fully trusted. For years, Yolanda had been using her for her fame, her money, her glamour, and Selena hadn't even noticed. And now that her eyes were finally open, it was already too late. Selena drove Yolanda back to the motel. She told her she couldn't trust her anymore and asked one last time for the missing bank records. After an hour of arguing, she grabbed Yolanda's briefcase, dumped the documents out onto the bed, and a gun came tumbling out with them. She turned to escape. It was all over now. Yolanda had lost the object of her hero worship, the only thing that made her mundane life extraordinary. But if she couldn't have Selena, she would make sure no one else could either. She picked up the gun, and at 11.48 a.m., she shot Selena Quintanilla Perez in the back. Selena made it to the hotel lobby before collapsing. But by the time an ambulance arrived, it was already too late. After an hour of failed attempts, they gave up trying to revive her. Selena Quintanilla was dead, just two weeks shy of her 24th birthday. The English-language album Selena had been working on was almost finished at the time of her death. It would have been her crossover into the mainstream pop charts, where Tejana music still didn't have an established place. But as it happened, she didn't need the crossover album to become a household name. In the music world, dying was the best publicity. Immediately after Selena's death, there was a massive outpouring of support from the Latino community. So big, it captured international attention. Every major news network in the country interrupted their regular programming to report on the breaking story. Selena was on the front page of the New York Times for two days in a row. 
Multitudes of white Americans who hadn't even heard of her the week before were now seeing her name everywhere. On April 2nd, tens of thousands of people lined up to pay their respects at Selena's public funeral service, with over 78,000 people signing the Book of Condolence. Her fans were devastated, as if it was one of their own family members who had died. The community had looked up to her as proof that the glass ceiling could be broken. With hard work and a positive attitude, even a poor Latina girl from Corpus Christi could make it in the white, male-dominated music industry. On the heels of Selena's standing-room-only funeral, EMI spent $500,000 to complete her album-in-progress, Dreaming of You. When it was released in July 1995, it sold 175,000 copies on the first day, a record for any female artist at the time. It was the first album by any Latino artist to debut at number one on the Billboard 200. Despite EMI's attempts to refocus attention on the music, not the murder, the album's success was no doubt bolstered by its bloody backstory. Nearly every review speculated on what could have been, the boundless potential that had been cut short for the young slain singer. Now that the flesh-and-blood woman was gone, Selena the legend lived on in the public consciousness in an arrested state of perfection, eternally in her prime. In October 1995, Yolanda Saldivar went on trial for first-degree murder. After two weeks, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. As she was let out of the courthouse, she was met by thousands of Selena fans gathered on the steps. They yelled in her face, waving banners that said, Kill Yolanda and Hang the Witch. As much as Yolanda was guilty of killing Selena, she was also partly responsible for creating a cultural icon. There's nothing pop culture loves more than a martyr. Selena was murdered by the very embodiment of celebrity culture, the president of her fan club. With one bullet, she ascended to mythical status as a warning of the dangers of fame. It's ironic that her death by celebrity worship only led to more fame and more objectification. Selena's lifelong struggle was against the forces of the music industry that wanted to commodify and control her. Whether it was her strict father, who made all her decisions for her, record labels that pigeonholed her because of her gender and race, or fans like Yolanda Saldivar, who saw her as a glittering ideal instead of a person. In the end, she was never able to break free. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. We'll be back next week with our next episode on Gloomy Sunday, also known as the Hungarian Suicide Song. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode was written by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>